Two weeks ago, I was uh, at this pulpit, and it was a very bumpy time indeed. I lost uh, my ability to speak several times. Those of you who reached out to me to offer encouragement, uh, mercy, uh, love, thank you uh, so very much for doing that. Uh, My uh, uh, brother, uh, Dr. Bill, gave me some advice. Uh, Dr. Higgins, thank you. I'm taking that advice now. Um, We're looking uh, this morning, returning, in fact, to Mark's gospel. You remember Mark's gospel? It's been a while, hasn't it? If you would, make your way in your Bible to uh, Mark chapter 14 or grab a pew Bible and turn to uh, page 851. Thank you, by the way, for uh, going uh, without me uh, last week. Uh, I spent last week uh, in uh, Philadelphia. And uh, I'm very appreciative to staff and volunteers uh, and elders for uh, stepping in and taking phone calls and staying in touch with you while I was gone. Our passages from Mark 14 will begin at verse 32. Little theologians, I do see you. You're small, but I see you. And I'd like for you to work on a piece of artwork. This scene takes place at night. I want you to draw a picture of someone running in the dark. You, by the way, shouldn't run in the dark. Let's make it more dangerous, running indoors in the dark. You shouldn't do that. But you should draw a picture of it. Running indoors in the dark. But the whole passage here takes place in the dark. There's actually quite a bit of movement Our passage again is Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 32. Uh, Welcome back to Mark's gospel. Uh, Before we read that passage, would you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Uh, Holy Father, you are a noisy God. What a strange expression that is, but uh, your very creation uh, uh, actually uh, declares your glory. You're noisy. Thank you for making yourself known. We thank you this morning for making yourself known in, in your special revelation here in Scripture. And so we ask that by your Holy Spirit, uh, we would understand uh, that which you are making known uh, in your Bible. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So our passage is Mark uh, chapter 14, and uh, we're beginning at verse uh, 32. <clears throat> They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. 
Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him, but one of those who stood by drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled." And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of our Lord. Well, you know where we are in the story of Jesus, don't you? Uh, Here we are as last week. This scene is just before the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. All of this will happen fast, it will seem, but tonight, everything slows down. Time seems to just stand still here. In verse 32, we begin in a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus says to his disciples, what? Sit here while I pray. You feel the time slow down? And notice the place, Luke Uh, says that they are in a a place called the Mount of Olives. That's in Luke's gospel. It's right across from the Kidron, which is uh, really just a creek that runs the east side of Jerusalem. And uh, here they are on the side of a hill that seems to be filled with old-growth olive trees. Matthew and Mark uh, say it's Gethsemane. It's a Hebrew word for olive press. In John's gospel, he says that it's actually a garden, so this may be a semi-private part of an olive grove that's surrounded by a very small wall. Uh, Likely, it's an olive grove that's derelict and unharvested. It could be that not many knew about this walled garden, and so it serves uh, as a bit of a private uh, retreat or getaway. Uh, But we know from other parts of Scripture that Jesus and his disciples have been here before often. Jesus earlier was probably teaching here, and they had fellowship here and prayed here. But do you feel everything slow down? It's dark. It's getting darker. We read elsewhere that lanterns and torches are needed to be able to see in this darkness. And if it's dark, keep in mind that it's also cold. And so uh, here Jesus is with his disciples uh, surrounded by trees 30 feet high. And the sun is setting just behind the city of Jerusalem. And the olive grove is slowly bathed in darkness. And Jesus says, sit while I pray. Now, this is the introduction of the sermon, uh, but I think the tone here is really important. The tone is sober. If you read carefully, even though the tone is very sober, there's actually a lot of movement that's taking place in this passage, and and I want you to see that. Uh, This is a dark and cold olive grove. 
But there's a lot of things that are happening in this scene. Really what we're seeing is we're seeing Jesus uh, actually move ahead of his disciples. Uh, Jesus, he is pursuing this great purpose of God. He's separating himself from his disciples that he might be seen as doing something that only he can do. And then as Jesus does this, we see from the use of language at the very, very end in verse 49 that Jesus doesn't think that he's doing this of his own accord. Uh, he's doing this according to the purpose of God, the purpose of God that's revealed in Holy Scripture. The Old Testament Bible tells Jesus what he's to do. He's moving to a place in the garden, but he's moving to a place where the disciples cannot go to a destination that belongs to him alone. And slowly we watch these disciples fall away and fall away. And Jesus becomes more and more alone as he's pursuing the will of the, fire, of, of the Father. And here it is, a dark and quiet night. But so much is happening. Well, let me tell you what I think this passage is about. This passage uh, has Jesus pursuing God's plan, and that plan is that Jesus would suffer and die for an undeserving people. That's what the passage is about. Jesus is pursuing God's plan that he would suffer and die for an undeserving people. Now, the sermon only has two points. The first point is about mighty men that fall away, uh, verses 32 through 41. Mighty men that fall away. And the second half of the sermon is uh, about the mighty man, singular, who fulfills. Mighty men, plural, who fall away, and a mighty man who fulfills. Let me say this as well. Really, the bulk of this sermon is all about that first point. The second, we're going to come to uh, slowly, but when we get there, we're going to pass through it quickly. First of all, the mighty men... They fall away. Look at verse 32. Jesus uh, addresses what I take to be all the disciples. What do you think about verse 32? Uh, He said to his disciples, I understand that, uh, to be 11 men. Uh, Of course, we're missing uh, one of them. Uh, We know that uh, Judas Iscariot is uh, is already gone. But uh, Jesus is addressing uh, 11 men. He says, sit here while I pray. And the 11 are supposed to sit there uh, while Jesus attends to go off into the distance and pray. Now, uh, really, just looking at verse 32, this is something rather familiar in the life of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus has done this before. Uh, Jesus has just kind of uh, disappeared into the darkness, usually early in the morning, and he goes off to pray. And so the disciples are to sit and Jesus is to pray. Uh, Pretty simple, right? Disciples would have experienced this before. But hold on a minute. It's not the only thing that's happening in this passage. Uh, Did you notice in verse 33 that Jesus, he chooses three of his disciples by name, Peter, James, and John, calls them out. And what's he doing there in verse 33? Well, he's uh, addressing all the 11, but he's really addressing three that he wants to uh, separate from the other eight. And there's the movement in the passage. You catch that? Between 32 and 33, there's movement in the passage. Jesus is separating three from the other 
eight. And he's pulling these three aside, you see, closer to him than the others. And these four, uh, the three disciples and Jesus, uh, they seem to move to a different place uh, in the grove, in the garden, uh, perhaps a more secluded part of the olive grove. And when we ask the question what it is that Jesus is doing, it's really important that we pay attention to verse 33. If you just look at verse 32, sit here while I pray, we might think that Jesus, well, he's just praying. But he's not just praying. He's removed himself away from eight disciples, and he's drawn to himself three of his disciples to a more private place in the grove. What is he doing? What do you think he's doing? Here's what I think. I believe that Jesus here is creating a a little bit of a classroom in the garden, a miniature lecture hall. Uh, He's uh, going to be apart from the other eight disciples, but uh, he is going to take these three disciples, and he's going to teach them a special lesson. It's almost as if Jesus finds in this olive grove a lectern, and he's going to stand behind this lectern, and in his class are are three disciples whom he has chosen, uh, pulled them out from the others, and he is going to teach them almost a uh, miniature woodland amphitheater, so to speak, yes? He's not just praying. He has these men here uh, with him. Just like coming into the city of Jerusalem where Jesus was in control of all the details and just like at the Lord's table where Jesus was in control of all the details. You see that here, don't you? Jesus is doing something. He's instructing his disciples, controlling uh, everything. And these three in particular are invited to hear a lecture from Jesus in the setting of a prayer. All of that in those first two verses, but we need to notice this cold, dark garden, but lots, lots of movement here. Now, I think when you, uh, when you look at it like uh, this, when you just take the details as they're before us in God's holy scripture, uh, I think that there's two questions that immediately leap to mind. The first question is automatic, isn't it? Why these three? Why these three? Of all the disciples, why these three? And I think the second question is this, what's Jesus teaching these three? And, by the way, what's Jesus teaching me and you? I think those two, those two questions are quite natural. And so, remember where we are in the sermon. Uh, the mighty men fall away. I'm giving you a little bit of a, of, of a hint of what's to come. But uh, let's, let's pause with the first question. Why these three? Well, these three have been popular in the past, haven't they? Uh, do you remember when uh, Jesus uh, healed the 12-year-old girl, the daughter of Jairus in Mark chapter 5? Uh, do you remember this Jairus, a wealthy leader in the city of Capernaum, where these uh, three men whom Jesus has called, these three men actually lived uh, in Capernaum. And Jesus goes into the house where Jairus's daughter uh, lies in a bed upstairs dead. And Jesus passes by the mourners and he ascends the staircase, but he brings these three men, Peter and James and John. They go with him into that upper room where the dead girl is and Jesus raises her from the dead. These three men witness that. These three men might be chosen because of the special things they've seen. Let's skip forward from Mark chapter 5 to Mark chapter 9. We see these three men uh, rise from the others there as well. 
Uh, These three men rise literally because they're invited by Jesus to do what? To go to the top of a mountain and to witness the the transfiguration of Jesus, to uh, see Jesus as he's uh, uh, emblazoned with whiteness and and shining before them. And they go to that mountain and see Jesus in that state as well as Moses and Elijah and the three of them are conversing. And there is a sound that comes from God from the very top of that mountain and God God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Who listened? These three men. Privileged men indeed. Surely then that's why Jesus chose these three. Let me tell you why I think Jesus chose these three. Jesus chose these three not simply because they're close companions who have witnessed a lot of things. It's because these three men are arrogant. These three men are arrogant. In fact, of all of the disciples, these three men stand out as being the most zealous and boastful, while at the same time the most hypocritical. That's why these three men are here. Let's take them one, uh, just just. Start off with Peter. Uh, Just a few verses before our very passage, you can uh, look in your Bible and you can see not three verses before the passage we began with this morning, uh, we see that illustrious Peter doing exactly what Peter does best, boasting about himself. He's the one who says, Jesus, even though all of these other disciples are going to fall away, I do wonder if he's pointing at them. Even though all of these others are going to fall away, not me. We can almost hear him pound upon his own chest in the face of Jesus. They are, but I will not. And Peter goes on, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Now, John and James are right there chiming in uh, for sure. But that's Peter, not three verses before this passage, the same evening you got to go back a little bit further to perhaps the day before Jesus uh, comes into the city of Jerusalem to see this wonderful glowing example of the same thing in James and John. These two are here because the day before the triumphal entry, they cornered Jesus. You remember this. They cornered him and they said to him, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's how the conversation started. Can you believe that? And here's what they say. They say, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. It's a small thing to ask, isn't it? He is, after all, Jesus. And in fact, by asking the question, they're actually kind of praising Jesus. They're pretty sure he's going to win and there will be such a thing as his glory. And Jesus, in his uh, uh, wonderful compassion and his long-suffering patience we read about earlier, uh, Jesus, he asks them both if they, think, if they think that they're able to drink the cup that he will drink or to be baptized with a baptism with which he's baptized, uh, meaning his uh, death on the cross. And what do they say? Well, what do you think they said? We are able. They didn't even just say yes. We're able. I wonder if they thought for like 20 seconds, drink the cup, yeah, 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 we're able. That's why these men are here. 
These men in recent memory stand out among the other disciples as being those who are the greatest champions as followers of Jesus Christ. These are Jesus' mighty men of valor as David had mighty men of valor. That's who these three think they are. That's who they think they are. And Jesus, he invites these zealous, confident, boastful men. He says, come with me. Enter my lecture hall. And these three men are now going to learn something. Well, that's why these three individuals are here. But what's Jesus teaching them and what's Jesus teaching you and I? Well, you see what Jesus wants them to do? He says in verse 34, remain here and watch. This actually is pretty easy. Remain here and watch. Then he says in verse 37, addressing Peter directly, could you not watch one hour? So there the word watch shows up again. Verse 38, watch and pray. You see that? Uh, He's added prayer, so uh, watch a couple of times and pray, and uh, Jesus uh, apparently says the same thing a third time, though that doesn't show up in our text. Uh, Really what he's doing is he's asking these zealous, confident, boastful men to do a few things that surely they ought to be able to do. You're the boastful ones, you're the mighty men, do these, stay here, watch and pray. Now, surely this would have been difficult to do, certainly for more than an hour, I think. I think it would be difficult. Uh, It's cold, and I'm Alaskan, but I don't like the cold. I don't want to sit out in in an olive grove at at night. And here Jesus is asking him to do something for longer than an hour. In verse 40, he says they already have heavy eyes. We also know they had a nice big meal. I'd want to go home. But listen to this. Even that, what Jesus asked them to do, these zealous, confident, boastful women, they can't even do that. Jesus finds them sleeping not once, not twice, three times. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Verse 41, sleeping is referred to uh, twice. Peter's the one who said he'd never fall away. And yet he slumped over on the ground sleeping. And then James and John, they vowed to sit on either side of Jesus, and here they are, slumped over, sleeping. They'd roll right out of their thrones. My, how these mighty men, they fall. We might think that what Jesus is teaching these men is he's humbling them. That's what he's doing. He's, in a way, shaming them, uh, embarrassing them. He's showing them how arrogant they really are. Uh, Jesus, uh, he has done this before. Uh, He actually uh, calls out boldness and he reminds us uh, that we are really frail. And it could be that that's what uh, Jesus is doing. Remember, why these three individuals and what is it that Jesus is teaching them and teaching us? But Jesus doesn't want to simply show them their arrogance. Jesus wants them to witness the cost of their arrogance. Remember, here's the question. Remember, why these three men? The second question is, what is he teaching them? Was he teaching us? Jesus doesn't want to simply show them their arrogance. Jesus, he wants them to witness the cost of their arrogance. I just, I've thought about this for many years, and maybe you have as well. What exactly is it that Jesus wants them to do? If it's not sleep, what does he want them to do? I mean, just think about that, uh, that, uh, Uh, imperative to watch. What are they watching for? Are they to watch the other eight disciples? Are they to to watch for incoming danger? 
And then they're to pray, so certainly they're to to pray that that they would be strong against temptation, but Jesus himself is praying. What exactly does Jesus want them to do? I think the best way to answer that is that Jesus wants them to witness, to witness. He wants them to see the cost of their own arrogance. He wants them to understand that great cost. Peter, with his chest puffed up, boasted about his own power to never fall away, and he promised to never deny Jesus, and here he falls asleep. But witness, Peter, what's Jesus doing? Jesus isn't boasting at all, is he? Jesus, he's wide awake, and he's spread out on the ground in verse 35, and he's praying to his Father in complete and total dependence. This isn't the the, the puffed-up chest in the face of Jesus. That's Peter. Jesus is on the ground, crying out to his Father like a child, Abba, Father. He's submitting to his Father. Abba doesn't mean Daddy. There's nothing childish or casual about this. It's not a homely scene. This is a personal, intimate, reverent submission to one's Father. And Jesus says, not what I will, but what you will. Peter, just this same evening... He got into Jesus' face and assured him that he'd never deny him. And Jesus is showing Peter that he's not like that. His heart breaks for the will of the Father. His desire to do what he must do will go even through his own sorrowfulness of soul, even to death. Jesus will not deny his Father. And Jesus will not boast. He knows that love for his Father and obedience to his Father and the plan of his Father all come together to kill him. Peter thinks this is a game. I'll never deny you. And Peter is being invited. Peter, would you watch your Savior suffer? Would you pray with and for your Savior? Why? Because this is all because of you. James and John, same puffed up chest, boasted about the cup that they were able to drink. But Jesus, he knows what this cup actually is. It's the cup of God's punishment for sin. That's what the cup is. And Jesus knows this. And he also knows that he isn't the one who sinned. On the contrary, Unlike James and John, from a position of humility and reverence, he appeals to his father to remove this cup. Not in a whiny, avoiding way, but as true submission. Because Jesus knows that only God, the one who has demanded this cup, is the one who can actually remove this cup. That's why he says, not what I will, but you will. James and John... They were so sure they could handle the punishment of God, weren't they? And here they are being uh, commanded to watch your Savior suffer and to pray with your your Savior because all of this is because of you. So to the question then, what is Jesus teaching them and what is Jesus teaching us? It's this. He's teaching us that our righteousness gets us nowhere. 
but his righteousness gets us everywhere. To witness these events of Jesus is to witness the wretchedness of my own heart played out on the back of the only innocent man ever to live. You see what's happening in this scene, don't you? This is the classroom. This is the lesson. Jesus, he is pursuing God's plan that he would suffer and die. For who? For undeserving people. Because you and I are the boasters. You and I are the ones who think we can earn our own salvation. You see, the Christian is a person who actually understands that they're sinful before God. That's what a Christian is. They know that God doesn't owe them a thing. They know that their mightiness and their zeal and their boasting, that their moral integrity, that their, uh, so to speak, pure intentions, they know that all of that is nothing but emptiness. And they know that sin deserves punishment, plain and simple. All sin, my sin, And the Christian has nothing to do but to cling to Jesus that he might deal with their sin just as he deals with their arrogance. And Jesus says, sit here and watch. I really hope that those words are music to your ears if you're here this morning and you're a Christian. This is what Jesus tells you to do. Sit here and watch because he does everything. Stop boasting. Stop assuming that you have something to bring to the table. No, I want you to sit here and watch. And a Christian should hear that as a great and glorious reminder of the gospel. Oh yes, thank you for telling me me that. That's what I'm to do. To sit here and watch. And Jesus Christ does everything for my salvation. And I doubt that today and I try to work for my own salvation each and every day. I struggle with this. But what I'm really called to do is to sit and watch. And one day, in my sitting and watching, my Lord and Savior will come again across that horizon, and he'll stand before me. And standing face to face with my Savior, all of the doubts and all of the temptation to work for my own salvation will melt. Yes, Jesus, now I, now I see. Yeah, sit and watch. Well, I told you we'd finish uh, quickly. Uh, the three uh, mighty men, they fail, but the mighty man fulfills Verse 42, I want us to notice something here. Notice that Jesus understands everything that's happening in the scene. Even in verse 42, Jesus understands exactly what is happening in the scene. He's the one who says, look, my betrayer has come. Jesus understands that everything that is happening is happening according to the promise of God in the Old Testament. It's profound that he says in 49 that his betrayal and arrest serves to fulfill Scripture. And what's amazing about this is you see in this passage here, beginning at 42, you see this massive conflagration, this movement of clubs and of swords and of people, all of this activity. And Jesus, though, is not moving, is he? The disciples of Jesus are are fighting those who come to arrest him. You see in verse 47 that a man loses his ear. And then the disciples of Jesus, as as they're fighting for Jesus, they don't even notice that Jesus isn't fighting. Jesus understands that all of this is unfolding according to the Old Testament. 
And when the fighting is all done, the disciples, uh, what do they do? The disciples actually uh, turn and run. Uh, explicitly, we're told, they left him. They fled. <laughs> Remember what Jesus said at the very beginning of the passage, remain. Just remain. Watch. See what happens. I'm saving you after all. You notice that naked man of verse 51. How could you not? Apparently there was even some young man who was following the evening's events, hoping to stay out of the fray, but he's discovered and almost arrested himself. And uh, just like the disciples, he's no different, well, apart from the lack of clothing, he's just like the disciples. He too uh, flees, runs away. I, I tend to agree with many other commentators that say that this is, there's a bit of a signature here in this verse that uh, this uh, man is actually Mark, the author of this gospel, uh, showing his role uh, in this particular scene. Um, And of course, what is Mark showing us? He's no better than the rest. He too flees for his life. Only Jesus voluntarily follows God's will as revealed in Holy Scripture and voluntarily sacrifices his life. Here's my point. Jesus tells us specifically that all of this fulfills the Old Testament, but not a disciple in sight wants God's plan. They want their own plan. And I want to address you this morning as a Christian. Do you feel that as well? You don't want God's plan, do you? You want your plan. We're plotters and planners and uh, pragmatists, and we want our plan to come to fruition. We need this uh, hot reminder. Uh, Do you really want that? God's plan, not just from Genesis 3.15, God's plan mysteriously from the foundations of the world, from before the ages began, uh, God's plan is that Jesus would represent his undeserving children and that he would do all things necessary for their salvation, to suffer for them and to die for them. Christian, do you really want your plan? You shouldn't. Special message here in this passage for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. This is where I want to conclude. This is a cold and a dark garden this scene is. But everything that's being revealed here is what's important. It's almost like everything that's unimportant, the the, the light is is, is continued to be kept in in, in the shadow, and everything that is revealed is exactly what we need to understand. And here's what's being revealed. Christian, you are depraved. You're sinful. This is who you are. Paul was confident saying that he is the foremost of sinners. And we need to be reminded as Christians that that's who we need to understand ourselves to be. Can you admit that, Christian? You should. You're a foremost of sinner. And I'm the foremost of sinner. And all the darkness in this passage, there's a bright light on that. There's also a brighter light. And that light is on the voluntary submission of Jesus to do all things necessary for our salvation. The bright light on Jesus shows that he is God's unfolding story of redemption in the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the foundations of the earth well into the future. But the disciples, they don't even want to watch. They don't even want to stay. And so the first thing I would say to you, Christian, is confess that you are a foremost sinner. But the second thing I want to say to you and say to myself is that the gospel of Jesus Christ should never be boring. To want your will over God's will, what is that? Is it boredom? 
Has he not done a good enough job? He's enfolded you in a grand story of redemption, uh, whipped you up with the palms of his hands into his very story. And would you say to him, "Mm, I don't think so. I'm going to leave you to your story and I'm going to run and flee. Jesus pursues God's plan that he would suffer and die for you, an undeserving sinner, and for me, an undeserving sinner. But where the light shines brightly, don't forget, that story of the gospel has you in it. Has you in it. Don't forget. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for saving us. Thank you for your good will to save us. We thank you that your instrument of salvation is Jesus and Jesus alone, and we ask that you would forgive us for thinking that we uh, have any part to play in that. We don't. Help us to watch afresh the story of the gospel before us. In Jesus' name, amen.